Well, let's come to the Lord as we pray and think about his word. Heavenly Father, guide us now, we pray. that The things that we think about today will bring us closer to you and keep us from stumbling. For Jesus' sake, amen. Sooner or later, if you're busy following the Lord Jesus, you'll find yourself being in the position of having your faith tested. Jesus warned us of this. The apostles taught that it would happen. And there are believers in the scriptures whose example reminds us that this is not an isolated thing. One of the ways that our faith goes through the testing process happens in a fairly ordinary, everyday kind of way. Sometimes it happens through temptation, something inside of us, Other times it happens simply through observation, something outside of us. This morning the issue is observation. The trials we plunge ourselves into when we note the successes or the comforts of those who do not yet know the Lord or those who have no time for him whatever. And observation tells us that everything seems to be going well for them. You may have made that observation in the past. You might have done it as recently as today. And all who do face the possibility of making a shipwreck of their faith. It's easy to say, well, you know, I'd never do that. For the moment you say that, then an even greater danger awaits. Our text this morning of Psalm 73 is a classic in helping us face this problem. Here we have one of the most puzzling questions in life for believers. How is it that some people who just live to do their own thing can have it so good, with life going so well, or at least it appears that way, in contrast to dedicated disciples of Christ who often struggle and suffer and face difficulty and after difficulty all their days? Have you ever become confused about that? Have you also ever fallen for the trap of envying those who seem to have no cares? The writer of the psalm certainly did. His name was Asaph, a worship leader in the Tabernacle Choir, a skilled singer and poet and sometime psalm writer. The ones numbered 50 and 73 to 83 bear his name and all of them have to do with the judgment of God. And Psalm 73 is no exception to this theme and is one that so neatly divides into these three parts. First of all, let's note the observation that ensnared him. Asaph begins his psalm by saying, Truly God is good to Israel to those who who are pure in heart. See, Asaph starts well, but it doesn't take long for those who read on to see that he's trying his best to prop up his faith before he tells us how he really felt. Truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Clearly Asaph was going through this trial in relation to his faith, and it was due to this observation made with his eyes that the ungodly appeared to have life so good, and this, he says, almost caused him to slip. And in slipping, he began to wonder whether it was worth following the Lord. 
You'll see his complaint in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. This following the Lord and seeing everything coming unstuck around him seemed to be a fool's game. It's almost as if he says, it seems the further away from the Lord, the better life can be. Serious doubts had grown in his heart about the value of being a believer. He came to the place in his life when he wondered whether it was worth it at all. For the more he looked at the ungodly and their seeming prosperity and enjoyment in life without the Lord, the more confused he became. Have you ever been where he was? Have you ever cast envious eyes upon ungodly people and then begun to seriously wonder whether it was worth being a Christian and you said out loud or just thought within, is it worth the effort staying on this narrow path or should I just give it all away? You know what the problem is? At least what this was, for Asaph, it's presumption. It's looking at things at a surface level only. It's looking at how they appear. In verses 4 to 12, Asaph tells us how he fell for it and he tells us there are the things that he presumed about these ungodly people who seemed to have it so good. These were the conclusions he came to from his twisted perspective. You can see them there in verse 4, that the ungodly appeared to have no trials. In verse 8, that they appear to have good health and no share in the burdens that others have. And in verse 12, that they always seem to be carefree and never short of a few dollars. And these things that Asaph presumed about the people who he's looking at almost wrecked his faith in the Lord. They may have even sowed the idea in his mind that he ought to join them if he wanted to enjoy life. And that began a slide for him down a slippery slope. Quite openly, he tells us he became discouraged, despondent, full of self-pity, ready to give the Lord away. Envy had swayed his outlook and doubt had begun to nest in his mind. It's hard to imagine an emotion so destructive and so soul-destroying as envy. It's no wonder the Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is the life of the flesh but envy the rottenness of the bones. The English poet Philip James Bailey wasn't far behind this either when he wrote, Envy's a coal that comes hissing hot from hell. I hope you never have to deal with envy, but I suspect that few of us ever live without its presence. There's always something to envy about someone, whether it be their apparently carefree life or their really nice car or their perfect family. Career, income, wardrobe, husband or wife, they also fit the bill. Envy was the cause of Asaph's slipping, and I say slipping and not downfall, because thanks be to God, it was only a slip and not a permanent fall. Second in the psalm, note the perspective that transformed him. And yes, the change that he underwent was incredible, life-changing. And what's more, he tells us what it was that altered his thinking and perspective. It's there in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Did you hear that? Did you hear what was the cause of the change? This change of perspective? 
He went into the sanctuary of God, that is to say, into the presence of God as it was then known and understood in Old Testament times. And there Asaph said, I began to put things into focus. As we might say, the penny dropped and the lights began to flash and all of it made sense. Let's not underestimate this change in perspective. This was a huge change. A huge change. To come out from under the weight of doubt and the subsequent discontent that it breeds is not something that ordinarily, humanly speaking, just happens. The trajectory he was on was downward. The slope was slippery. The evidence to support his conclusions from his observations were not going away. Until that moment, Asaph's despair had been mounting and growing like Topsy, even becoming out of control. But the moment he put his eyes back where they ought to have been, on the Lord, not on others, not on himself, it was as if then and there that his right mind returned to him, and he understood once more what he had known but must have forgotten, that God's blessings are always upon the way of the righteous, and they are good, not just for this life, but also for the next. And by putting his eyes back on God, Asaph remembered that what the wicked enjoy here will only be short-lived, but what the righteous enjoy will last forever. And that the end of the wicked will not involve nearness to God in blessings. But the end of the righteous, no matter what his experience in this world, will involve eternal fellowship with the living God. And that's what the heart of this psalm is all about. Eyes where they should be. Off the wicked. Off yourself. Onto the Lord. Then thirdly, that leads us to the process that confirmed him. Confirmed in his faith, that is, not confirmed in his growing doubts, but confirmed in this renewed faith, when after he'd been in the sanctuary of the Lord and saw all things in their correct perspective again. And yes, these verses describe also that process that led him back to safety and to avoid the shipwreck of doubt fueled by envy. Notice the things that Asaph did. Let's name them. For a start, he decided that he would keep his doubts to himself. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, when we are down spiritually, we can get things so distorted and twisted It's not the time to verbalise to everybody how we feel, as if it would only drag them down and place them on the slope you've been on. So he made a wise decision to keep his doubts to himself. Now I'm not suggesting for a, a moment that when you're depressed or down you shouldn't seek help. But go to people who can help you. Don't blurt out your troubles from the housetop. Go to someone who can sit with you and pray with you and be of help to you. Then also we see in the process, in verse 17, how he went into the presence of God. That is, he went in with all of these mixed feelings about whether or not it was worth following the Lord, and he took them all to the Lord. He began to get God's viewpoint. He perceived what was truth and what was false, and in his thinking he shifted from a distorted human natural viewpoint to a wise, godly, spiritual point of view. You know, this happens to us also. 
It happens when we read the word of God. It happens when we mix with other believers. It happens when we fellowship around the Lord's table in faith and humility. We undergo a radical change in our thinking and we leave different than when we came in. Remember how the Samaritan woman came to the well that day all messed up with just a human viewpoint and she met Jesus. He changed her whole viewpoint and she went away different than when she got up that morning. Then we note Asaph began to perceive the true facts of the situation. If you look at verses 18 to 20, you'll find that Asaph lost sight of the destiny of the ungodly and the processes by which they were living. He had lost sight of the inner lives of people who were without the Lord, that they have no inner strength for life, and even worse, they have nothing to rely upon in the face of death. No anchor to hold to. Outwardly, they maintained a facade of happiness, but inwardly were falling apart. Then we find Asaph re-evaluated his original attitude, Verses 21 to 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. What's he saying here? Well, he's having a good, long, honest look at himself and in doing so sees why he got so messed up in his thinking and why he came to these wrong conclusions. He realized that he was like a beast, ignorant of the scriptures, or like a brute, hard-hearted, who turned away from what he knew. So can you and I. We don't know what God says, and therefore we come to wrong conclusions about people and things and situations. Like a beast, we act instinctively in such circumstances. Instead of going back to the scriptures and getting things sorted out or talking to people who are strong in the Lord, we let these things take root in our mind and sow doubts like Asaph did until we start listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves to stay within the circle of God's love and upon the narrow path. And then the process goes on in verses 23 to 24 as we see that he embraced what really was the truth. After noting what he had falsely believed, what was right to be wrong, he soon found out what was right. He noted that it was the unbeliever who was on the slippery slope. He saw that things weren't what they appeared to be. He saw that despite all their appearances, they didn't have half of what he had. And so he said, Lord, I'm always with you. And you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. He realised what he had concluded was true was false, and what he concluded was true had been what his eyes had told him and not what God's word had told him. And in that truth that cannot be seen with our eyes but believed, even though our eyes tell us the opposite, he found the reality of the hope that he would be with the Lord forever and that all of the unbelievers' supports were nothing but pillars of sand, like a man who built his house on the sand. So will it be for those whose hope is only for this life and for this world. And then finally we see Asaph restating his commitment to the Lord. But as for me, it's good to be near God. 
he cries in verse 28. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Not long before this, as you read this psalm from the outset in his distorted frame of mind and his messed up thinking, he was questioning the value of the Lord and he was ready to turn him down. But now he says, Lord, I'm going to tell people what you're really like. I will tell of all your deeds. What a difference it makes when the word of God, the truth, saturates your mind. But if you and if I drift away from these things, we inevitably become messed up and confused. You need to go fresh into the presence of the Lord. To be alone with him. Or maybe share with those who love him supremely. And get your focus retuned. Friends, can I ask you what your eyes are on today? Are they on the world around you? Upon man and the glory of man and all that he boasts in? Upon those who have material wealth or possessions or skills? If they are, then you'll be discouraged. Are they on yourselves? Upon your strengths, your achievements, or your woes, or your troubles, or your losses? If they are, then you'll be disappointed. Or are, are your eyes upon the Lord? Are they upon what he promises will be the lot of those who love him and seek to walk with him? If they are, then you'll be delighted. One man, discouraged, on yourself, disappointed, on the Lord, delighted. And you'll be able to say with Asaph, if your eyes are on the Lord, as for me, it's good to be near God. Let the wicked go their own way. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will look only to him for salvation. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And if these words of Asaph ring true for you, then let me assure you that while you remain on earth, God promises to be your strength. And then in heaven, God promises to be your joy. And he will never disappoint the one who seeks him over above everything else that this world may offer. And from that perspective, you can let envy go. Why? Because as the Apostle Paul said, we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this, in short, means that what you have in Christ is worth more than anything on earth. And in him and him alone, you'll find that which brings the true satisfaction and the true life. Have you come to Christ? Do you have him? Take him. Trust him. Come to him. He said, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. On this, John Mason from the 17th century wrote, Come as you are. Come poor. Come needy. Come naked. Come empty. Come wretched. Only come. Only believe. His heart is free. His arms are open. Tis his joy and his crown to receive you. If you are willing, he never was otherwise.
come and renew your sight. Once again, put your eyes on him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Come and survey the wondrous cross and pour contempt on all your pride. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this record of your word, what this psalm tells us about how we can get our eyes so wrong, looking at the things around us and making the wrong conclusions. Thank you for the experience of Asaph, that everything turned for him when he went into the sanctuary of the Lord and saw again your glory. May we see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures, that all things that concern us, that cause us to envy, that put us off track and cause us to slip, that these things will have their proper perspective because all things will be seen in the light of his glory and grace. So teach us and help us, equip us, give us the right kind of sight so that we may fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith and run the race set before us with endurance, with perseverance. Thank you that you forgive us when we fall. So keep our eyes, we pray, firmly fixed upon the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died. We pray in his name.